where many a dream has died. Like a tree planted by the water, we never will run dry. So living water flowing through, God, we thirst for more of you. Fill our hearts and flood our souls with one Just to know 
Just let's divide. 
God, we worship you today because Christ is risen. We know that you're at work in our lives and in this place. And our prayer is that you would make us sensitive and aware and open to all that you want to do through your spirit in us, individually and corporately. Pour out your blessing on this time of worship. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Share what a greeting with others who are here in worship today.
As you uh, may be aware, we have almost completed the first week of our three-week 24-7 prayer vigil. And uh, we are excited about the stories we're hearing, the things that God is doing. And I've asked uh, Jenny Iacucci and uh, Emily Mersloff to share a little bit of their experience in the prayer room, both this week and in other years. Okay, hi. So as Pastor West said, I'm Jenny Iacucci. Um, This is Emily, and we're both seniors at Holton College. And this past week, we had the opportunity to participate in the prayer vigil. Um, So we signed up for the 2 a.m. slot because we were like, we're college students and we can handle that. But But, uh, when our alarms went off at 1.50 a.m., we were a bit confused as to, you know, why they're going off. And needless to say, it was a long walk to church. Um, So I do not function, you know, past 11 p.m. You will find me in my bed at 11 p.m. every night. And so the first thing I prayed for uh, when I was laying down, face down in the prayer chapel, was for God to keep me awake for an entire hour. Um, I was reading through the prayer journal, and I actually went through it backwards. And as I went through it, I prayed for each, you know, entry that was in there. And I came across my entry from last year that I had written at the same time. Um, And it was interesting to think about how far I've come since then and how sovereign God is through all of that. So... I essentially just prayed for, um, I guess, for everyone else to explore that sovereignty that God has. And, you know, to maybe look back on their life in the past year and to just think about his, um, his presence in their lives. And he doesn't change. He's always there. And he was there when I wrote that entry, and he was there when I read it, and he's here now. Um, my experience is a little different. Um, I stress out a lot about the future if I don't know what's happening. So that's what I've been doing lately, all the time. Um, So it's constantly overwhelming and just like knowing that you're graduating but not knowing what you're doing next. Um, So that night I was able to give all of my anxiety and my worry to him, which was really nice. Um, And I journaled about it and I was able to pray about it. But the other thing, um, I spent the other half of the night, I, um, my home church is in Rochester and there's a little girl who's in fifth grade and her name is Lydia. um, And she was diagnosed with leukemia. But two weeks ago, um, the doctors told her that her body had stopped responding to treatments and that um, she only had, like, a few more weeks to live. So um, I spent a lot of time just, like, crying out to the Lord and trying to intercede for her and praying for healing and just realizing how awesome he was. So, yeah, it was a good opportunity. You can sign up today after the service in the back foyer, uh, over in the other foyer as well, or anytime online. And uh, all the next, we have two more weeks left. All the times are open. If the weeks are open and available, uh, a lot of those times have already started to be taken. But uh, there are times in the middle of the night, all throughout the day. And we hope you'll participate. If you haven't yet had a chance to go into the room this year, there are some things that are different than we've done in other years. And there are some things that are similar. But if you haven't ever had the opportunity to go in and spend an hour either by yourself or with some other people, I'd really encourage you to do that. It is... Um, there's something about the quiet, something about the set-aside space. There's something about coming to that room where you know people have been there before you, people are going to be there after you, and it becomes a holy place as we uh, come to pray. So we encourage you to do that. We also this year are doing a few times each week of corporate prayer. Uh, sometimes where just anybody who wants to can just come and we pray together. We had a couple of hours this week and were great times of praying together. Not large group of people, but... Just a group that came together and we prayed and it was just, it was really invigorating to pray with one another. And so this Wednesday night, 6.30 to 7.30, we'll be in the prayer room 
and uh, we will be praying during that time. And then um, on uh, Saturday morning at 10 o'clock is the other time. You don't have to sign up for those times. Just show up, and uh, there will be people there to lead, uh, either pastors or elders, and uh, be a part of that time of praying. And so we hope you'll join us uh, on either Wednesday night at 6.30 or Saturday morning at 10. Uh, there are a couple other things I want to mention to you. We're collecting food for the food pantry, and there's a sheet in here about uh, things that we need and if you have some questions. And also, next Sunday is the last day to drop off your shoebox for Operation Christmas Child, and then those will be sent to the distribution center, so please take note of that. We're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us as we give to God our tithes and offerings. There's nothing that my hands can do to save my guilty soul. I cannot cleanse my filthy stains or make my spirit whole. For nothing but the blood of Christ can all my sins erase. I dare not claim my righteousness but hide within his grace. Tis Christ who saved me from the depths, God's pardon I've received. I'm washed within his precious blood, my heart is sprinkled sing with us. I'll praise the God of holiness, of justice, truth, and might, who guides me by his mighty hand to walk within his light. While Satan weaves his shallow lies, God speaks to me Woo! 
you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers as we pray together, please come and join me. Father, we give thanks to you for who you are, for all that you've done. We sing your praises because you're good and loving and merciful. And through Jesus Christ, you have provided the way of salvation for everyone. So we come to worship you in adoration, praise, thanksgiving. And we come interceding for people who are in need. You see the pain in our hearts, the struggle in our minds, the ways in which we disappoint and hurt each other. You see our self-centered behavior and our self-destructive choices. Forgive us. Father, we pray for for people who are particularly in need today, that are on our minds and our hearts. We pray for your comforting grace upon all who are grieving today. And I think especially of Paul Young and his family at the death of his mother on Friday. We pray you'd comfort them and help them as they, as they face this grief. We pray for all who are wrestling with issues of of physical health. We pray for Tim Nichols and for Bruce Brenneman, Bill Roski and Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Alton Shea and Isla Shea, Dick Gould, Edna Howard, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and others who come to our minds this morning. Some of these folks we've been praying for a brief time, some a longer time. But we continue to trust you for your grace in their lives, in their bodies, in every part of their being. Lord, as we went to vote on Tuesday, we were reminded of what we so often take for granted, our freedom. On this Veterans Day weekend, we want to thank you for all who've sacrificed for our freedoms. And we pray for all who suffer from the sacrifices of war. That you'll give healing and a sense of your grace and peace. And Father, even as we think about our freedom, we're reminded of so many of our brothers and sisters who do not have freedom. We pray, Lord, that in this world of threats, limitations violence, war, the opposition of the evil one, we ask for your your protection and your grace upon our brothers and sisters. We think especially of the Christians in Tanzania 
and the family of the school teacher who, after an early morning prayer vigil, was killed. For those who are receiving threats, we pray for your comfort in their grief, your protection upon them, and courage to live for you in the midst of such difficult circumstances. Lord, we continue to pray for your healing and the Ebola virus and for those who are most affected by it. We pray, Lord, for an end, for healing, and for your people to bear witness of your grace and love in the midst of great tragedy and pain and loss. Father, as we move into the second week of our prayer vigil, we pray that you'd continue to work in us individually and corporately. Help us to sense you at work in our hearts and in every part of our being, inspiring us as your children. We pray all of this through the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world as an infant, and went to the cross for our sins and rose again to newness of life that we might live and ultimately is coming back that we might live eternally. It's in his name that we offer this prayer and all of our prayers. Amen. The scripture reading is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 16 through chapter 6, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. 
If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Father, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to your word and to what you want to speak into our lives this morning. Help us to have an open mind and spirit and heart and being to you. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I opened, began um, looking at the questions that you uh, sent to me as last spring when I said, what would you like to hear a sermon about? I was not all that surprised to find that a number of the questions related to sex. And particularly, even more so, uh, the issue of sexual morality because it's a big part of our culture. It's a big part of, of who we are as human beings. Now, I, you know, I was, like I said, I wasn't surprised. It just made me have a lot of sleepless nights, uh, thinking about, wondering, worrying, anxious. How do you say this in the way that is, is right and true? How do, you, how do you know what to say? How do you know how to say it? Because that's a big concern for me. And I have spent a lot of time talking with people and studying and reading and thinking through this issue because it is so important. It is a big part of who we are. And so as I've I've pondered this, now some of you may be thinking it's not that complicated. Scripture's clear, just say it, call it, go home, we're done. Other people would say, well, yeah, you're right, it is clear. We just love each other, that's all we need to know, go home, we're done. But somehow, in the midst of our desire for simplicity, we have to come to realize that the gospel is complex. Being a follower of Jesus is complex. What we want are simple answers. We just want, give me a formula, give me a one, two, three, and I'm done, and then I can just go and not have to worry about it anymore. But God in his wisdom just simply doesn't do that with us about anything, to be honest with you. So my... My goal today, my desire today, is to somehow, through what we talk about, to balance, to, to have the perspective that, is, that John uses to describe Jesus. In the first chapter of John's gospel, in that prologue, he says that we have seen 
the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I'm convinced that about every issue, but particularly about this issue, we need to to approach this from a perspective of grace and truth. And that's what I'm going to try to do. I think it's important right off the bat to acknowledge that, that sex is a gift of God. We read in Genesis chapter 2 that at the very beginning, God says to Adam and Eve that, that he, he brings them together and they, have, they are intimate with each other. They are one flesh. And part of the reason for that is so that they will bear children, but it's also to, to have a sense of intimacy with each other. The Hebrew word, you know, in the Old Testament, especially if you read in the Old King James, it says that, for instance, Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. And she became pregnant. And that word, to know, it means to, to understand, to experience, to have intimacy. And God has blessed us with this gift of intimacy that we call sex. At the same time, though, we, through the history of the church, has had a tendency to, while we do believe that, the message we have often sent to people is sex is bad. And in fact, David Siemens talks about how when he was growing up 60 or some years ago, that the message he received from the church over and over and over again was sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. And then, on the day when he walked out of the church from his wedding, the church is now saying, okay, now sex is good, sex is good, sex is good. And he said, it was really difficult psychologically to make that shift. Because all of my life, I had been told, bad, bad, bad. And now they're saying, no, we were wrong, now it's good, good, good. And somehow as a church, we have to figure out a better way to communicate, particularly to our young people, the truth about sexuality. We have to figure out a better way to help people understand that sex is a gift of God. Now, I know the reason we talk about it being bad is because Scripture, because we have a tendency as human beings to corrupt it, as we do everything. I mean, in a sense, you could say the definition of sin is a gift of God that we have twisted, corrupted, turned to our own ways, made selfishly. And we do that with sex. This great gift of God, we have corrupted. And we see it all throughout the pages of Scripture, over and over again, people taking God's gift and corrupting it, twisting it, turning, to, turning it to selfish ends. And we call, the Scripture tends to call that sexual immorality. And so we, we're in our, in our desire to be so cautious about immorality we have gone so far the other way that we make it almost shameful for married couples to, to talk, for people to engage in that and talk about it even. We don't even like to talk about it. I mean, it makes everybody nervous. We shouldn't be that way. Now, it is true that when you read the scripture, sex is a gift of God and sex is good, but only and always within the context of marriage. Only within the context of of marriage is sex said it's good. Every other avenue of sexual activity outside the bond of marriage is condemned. And there are no exceptions. Absolutely no exceptions. You read the scriptures over and over and over again. This passage in Galatians is one of those places. And many others were talked about sexual immorality. And the scriptures are very, very clear that 
God's gift of, of sex is intended for the marriage bond. And that includes people who are in our culture. That, I mean, you look at our culture and that's going to be a, not just a, an odd thing to say, but it is a rejected idea. Because we live in this, you know, hookup culture. We live in a culture in which, you know, people commit adultery and it's not that big of a deal. I mean, all you have to do is go to the theater or watch television. And just indiscriminate sex is the way you live. That's how you enjoy life. And it's continually bombarding us. And to say something else, people don't even understand it. But that's the biblical perspective. And that includes, and, I, and well, let me say it this way. When we, as the church, I doubt if many of us would say, no, we disagree with that. I think by and large, we would say, we understand. Sex is intended to be experienced within the context of marriage. We might not practice that. We might really struggle with that. But we would say, we get that. Where it becomes a bit dicey is when we start talking not just about the sexual mores of our culture, but when we start talking about the issue of homosexuality. Because, and we all know, it's a huge issue in our culture. It's a huge debate within the church. And we are continually confronted with, what are we going to do about that? How do we respond to that? What's, what's our position about that? And actually, a number of you asked questions. In fact, the issue of homosexuality was, was by far the predominant question among all of the questions related to sexuality. I think it's important as we think about that particular issue to understand that every time homosexuality is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. And there, you know, there aren't a lot of things in Scripture that you find that you could say, well, that's a consistent thread all the way through. And that is one of them, just as sex outside of marriage is condemned. And we have passages in Scripture like Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, where there is a list of, of uh, sexual inappropriate behavior. And homosexuality is one of, the, one of the things in the list. You find in Romans 1, you, you, we have a passage of various sins and homosexuality is one of those. First Timothy 1.10, same thing. The thing that I think it's important, for us, it's important for us to understand, because I think we jump to this wrong conclusion, it's important to understand that there is a difference between homosexual behavior and inclination, orientation. And one of the things that I think the church hasn't figured out real well is the difference. If someone says... You know, I, I'm not really attracted to someone of the opposite sex. My attraction, my orientation is to someone of the same sex. We automatically begin condemning them, even if not with our words, with our minds. And that's a problem. Because that really, in essence, is saying that we believe temptation is sin. And if we believe temptation is sin, then Jesus sinned because he was tempted a lot. And there is a huge difference, and we need to be clear about that difference. Scripture condemns homosexual behavior in the same way that it condemns any kind of of sexual activity outside the bond of marriage. But the temptation is a completely different thing. 
And I think it's important for us to understand that. I also think it's important for us to understand that homosexuality is not the ultimate sin. Because I get the feeling sometimes that in our culture and in the church, we have created an atmosphere where it appears that way. It's almost the unpardonable sin. We have come to the place where we say, you know, if, if that's your struggle, if, if that's your issue, then, hey, you know, you're, you're done. What we forget is in, in every one of these cases where homosexuality is mentioned, there are lots of other sins mentioned too. You take Romans 1, for instance, where people love to quote this passage because it talks about how it says that God uh, gave people over to their shameful lusts. And one of the things that is part of that is homosexuality. But you go on and he says that they have become, these people who he's talking about, have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. And malice, they are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. We don't talk about that one a whole lot, do we, in the same context? You see, one of the things that I think we, we wrestle with is that we have categorized our sins. And we have said, this is the big one, and these other ones, well, whatever. And it becomes, well, that's their sin, so we condemn that, but it's not my sin, so not such a big deal. You see, everyone wrestles with all kinds of sin. I think we are all predisposed to certain sins. I think genetics. I think environment in which we're raised. I think the influences that have been and are on our lives. I think experiences that we have gone through, particularly traumas, have created a sense within us where we are more tempted about certain kinds of sins than other things. And there are things that you wrestle with that I don't. There are things that I wrestle with that you don't. And what tends to happen is, if I don't wrestle with it, then it's a big deal. Because I don't wrestle with it. If you do wrestle with it, then we have a tendency to play it down. And, and so we, we create, again, categories of my sins are not as bad as your sins. And it becomes a them and us kind of perspective. And that is always dangerous because that just automatically is going to lead us to being judgmental of people. And if anything, when we look at this list of sins and we see what's listed here and we recognize how wide-ranging they are, it ought to make us that much more patient with each other. It's not excusing the sin. It just ought to make us more patient. And some of, because some of us are more inclined, I mean, you might be more inclined to anger or to gambling or to being engaged in sexual activity with someone of the opposite sex. For some reason in the church, we've said those things are bad, but they're not as bad. And the reality is, sin is sin. 
Our struggles are our struggles. And, and we need to be honest and open about that. And it's not, again, to excuse it. But quite frankly, if I remember the things that I'm wrestling with, even if they're not what you wrestle with, hopefully that's going to make me much more patient, much more compassionate toward you, and hopefully you toward me. I think it's imperative that we deal with that, that we understand that. Years ago, uh, Joe Bailey wrote an article for Eternity Magazine where he talked about the issue of homosexuality. This was back in the 70s, and it was just sort of really beginning to become an issue of discussion in our culture and in the church. And, and in this article, he makes this point that, you know, we have elevated this, this issue to a, a higher level than any other struggle that people have. And he says, but when you read this list in Romans 1, one of the things that you find here is we tend to single that one out, but you find here lots of other things like envy and jealousy and gossip and slander and he says, if I were to take a poll, he said, I would be pretty, I'm pretty sure that we would find a whole lot more of our young people have rejected the church because of envy and slander and backbiting than being tempted about homosexuality. And yet, we have a tendency to say, well, you know, people deal with that, that's the way it is. No. It's serious stuff. And the more we understand that, the more we'll be able to help each other. The more compassionate we are with each other. So what do we do as the church? What's our response to the issues of sexual immorality, whether you're talking about the hookup culture, adultery, homosexuality? What do we do? How do we handle this? I think the church has to become a place where people have hope about our sins. We have to be a place where we decide we are opening our doors to people who are sinners. Otherwise, nobody would be showing up here on Sundays. Let's just be honest about it, folks, right? We have to decide we are going to create an atmosphere where we can come as sinners. And that means that we... Instead of judging one another, we, we live in the spirit of the fruit of the spirit in our lives. That we, we love one another, we care for one another, we're gentle, we're patient, we're compassionate with each other, we're faithful to each other. That's the kind of spirit that will bring about change in the church and through the church to the rest of the world. That we are so connected to each other in love and compassion and faithfulness and gentleness And again, it doesn't mean we're just ignoring our sin and we're acting like nobody's doing anything wrong. We're just being compassionate with each other about our wrong. Eugene Peterson says, the church is the primary place where we learn the language of love. And I suspect a lot of people, maybe some of you sitting there, are sort of thinking to yourself, yeah, right. That's not the church I know. That's not the church I was raised in. That's got to break God's heart more than anything else. This is the place where we learn to love each other. Because we, we basically are, are, have the same focus. We're, we're all saying we want to be followers of Jesus. We can talk about people who live in other places, who have other mindsets, who are not a part of the church. And, and it, that makes it more difficult. But in the church, it ought to be 
better. And yet we wrestle with that and we struggle with it. And what we need is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives to give us what we need to care for each other in the way that the Spirit intends. I think we also do that. I think that happens because we create an atmosphere in the church of honesty and openness, confession. You know, you look back at the church through the centuries, and it seems to me that the church was much better at that than we are now. You know, for a long time in the history of the church, maybe it was because of of the confessional in the Catholic church that the reformers uh, got rid of, but people just seem to be more willing and able to talk about the stuff going on in their lives. As I said to you before, it was really the the key element of the Methodist movement, of, of Wesley's organization of that. And he had this group of people in bands. They were the hardcore followers. They were the they were the Methodists of the Methodists. They were it. And what did they do? Every week they came together in their small groups and said, what spiritual victories have you had? And they rejoiced over that. And then they went around the room, person to person to person, and said, what sins have you committed this week that you need to confess? And they did. And they didn't do it in a spirit of judgment. They did it in a spirit of compassion and grace and love and mercy. No wonder that movement exploded. But for some reason, we've created this, this more judgmental, hidden... We, we have this mindset that if we just hide our sin from each other, it won't be real. The truth is, the more we hide it, the more real it is. The more the struggle becomes, the more difficult it is to do anything about it. You know the feeling of confessing something to someone else and the freedom that comes from that. That's what we need to establish as the church. It's not going to happen in large group settings like this. It'll be small groups. That's why we, we love people being involved in small groups. It's one of the reasons we have the prayer room. You can go there with, by yourself or with other people. You can write in the journal, as Emily mentioned. You can, I mean, I look at that wall that we have in there and people write stuff on that wall and I'm always amazed at the things people write and the sins that people confess and the struggles they put up there. And I think to myself, these are people who are being set free because they're able to talk about it. And we pray for each other and we love each other and we support each other. Yeah, sometimes we confront each other because that's what you do in love. But always in a spirit of compassion and grace and wanting what is best for each other. Not just because that person made me angry and I'm going to let them know it. We need the spirit of openness, the spirit of, of, of transparency and honesty. And that means we're going to have some discussions with each other because we aren't always going to agree about things. We need to have dialogue. We need to discuss. But we need to come to those dialogues. We need to come to those discussions in a spirit of humility. If we come to the discussions thinking, I've got all the answers, I know what's right, my goal is just to convince them, nothing productive is going to come out of that. That's just going to be fighting. Might as well just forget about talking. But if we come to each other, the conversations, in a spirit of humility and grace, in in a sense of, as Paul says, fear and trembling, in a sense, a desire to want to learn from each other because we know we're all on the journey and none of us are perfect and none of us have figured out all this stuff yet. That's when 
spiritual growth begins to take place in us individually and in us corporately. For some reason, we have bought into the idea that really is a, is a, it's a non, it's an unbiblical idea, it's an unchristian idea. We've bought into the idea that if we love someone, if we, if we are compassionate towards someone, that we are somehow approving of whatever struggles they're dealing with. And, and that's just simply not right. That's not the spirit of Jesus. I mean, I don't see Jesus saying to anyone, look, when you get your life figured out, then you come talk to me. It's the people who say, I've got my life all figured out, are the ones who say, I don't need Jesus. The people who know they are struggling, the people who don't know what to do about their struggles, are the ones who come to Jesus and find everything that they have been looking for. And so we have these conversations. But again, as I've said before, it's not enough to agree to disagree. Because that really means I'm right, you're wrong. Someday you'll figure out I'm right and you're wrong. Instead, we say even though we disagree, we are committed to loving each other. We're committed to respecting each other. I will fight for you. I will fight for your rights. I will fight for, for your freedom. I I will back you and love you and support you. And yes, we may disagree and I may challenge you about some things, but you need to know I will never give up on you. And I will always treat you with respect and I will never demean you to anyone. And that's the kind of mindset, the kind of dialogue that moves us from bitter disagreement to conciliatory spirit, attitude perspective. And I think that if we're going to say to each other that the only, that the biblical sexual ethic is that sex is is intended and designed and right only within the context of marriage, then we need to be a support system for each other to live that way. I think too often we have said, look, this is the way it is. This is what sexual purity is. Now go deal with it and we walk away. If we're going to make those kinds of demands on each other and they're biblical demands, then we need to be willing to sacrifice for each other and invest in each other and be in each other's lives to help each other. An issue or two ago in Christianity Today magazine, Wesley Hill wrote an article about friendship. And he's actually going to be coming to speak at the college in a few months. And uh, he, he says, you know, in the midst of this article that he is gay and he's celibate. Now, again, this goes back to the mindset I was talking about earlier. As soon as he says he's gay, we don't even hear celibate. We just see gay and we start judging. But he says, I'm gay. That's my orientation. I have no attraction to people of the opposite sex. But I'm celibate because I believe that's the biblical perspective. He said, what I need, I need some friendships that will help me with the kind of, of relational intimacy that a husband and wife have in terms of someone to talk to, someone to, to lean on, someone to, you know will be there for you as you go through life. 
I said, I, I need that from people in the church. I need friends who will know when my plane lands. I, have, I need friends who will, who will call me if I don't show up when I'm supposed to show up. I need friends who will, who will help me when I'm sick and I'm struggling. I need people I can talk to, to work through the things in my life. I need someone I can call to say, I've got to tell you about the funny thing that happened at work today. Because I need people who I'm always welcome in their house and I don't even have to knock. And people are always walking in my house. They don't have to knock. And he said, I, w- I want people in my life that when they're sick, I'll bring soup to them. And when I'm sick, they'll bring soup to me. Because we have developed this kind of friendship, this intimacy of relationship with each other that, that fulfills so much of what goes on in marriage. And we care for each other and we're there for each other. And if the church is going to be the church, and if we are going to say this is the ethic that the scriptures demand, then we have got to sacrifice for each other and help each other. And it will mean sacrifice. It means we give up some of our freedom for each other. It means we give up some of our comfortable life for each other. But ultimately, it's being the church. Because when you read the scriptures... See, we tend to think that the relational orbit centers around marriage. And we have often given the, given the idea that if you're not married, well, you're just a not quite whole. The reality is when I read the scriptures, the church is the relationship around which everything orbits, including marriage and family, whatever that looks like. And it's in the church that we find what God wants to do in our lives. And yes, marriage is awesome, and we give thanks to God for it. But not everyone wants to or will be married. And we don't have to think we're living less than full lives because of that. But only if the church becomes the church. Only if we're there for each other and we are in this kind of relationship with each other. And again, you can't do it with everyone. But there ought to be some people in our lives that we do that with. And it takes time. And it takes energy. And it takes effort. And it takes commitment. But that's what being Christian with each other is about, isn't it? Because that's who Christ is for us. Ultimately... This issue, like every other issue, comes back to the cross. The struggles that we have with whatever sins we're wrestling with come back to the cross. The answer to whatever we're wrestling with brings us back to the cross. It's one thing that I love about the prayer room this year is that we've got this, in the middle of the second room, we've got this, this cross down there that's lit up. And it reminds us that this is where our focus is. And our identity is not in, it's not in anything sexually about us. Our identity as Christians is in Christ. And that then means Christ bears on everything of our lives because it brings us back to the cross. And the cross is the ultimate message of grace and truth. Because in the cross, we're reminded of our sin and the reality of our sin and the consequences and the pain of our sin of what it costs Jesus. 
But the cross also reminds us of grace. That whatever our sin, despite our sin, we keep coming back to the grace of God in Christ who died for us. And so Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, remember, with all of your sin, you were bought with a price. You're God's special people. And in Romans 1, where he talks about how God gave them over to their shameful lusts and deals with all those sins that relates to all of us, the one thing, he then goes on in chapter 2 to tell us, but God never gives up on you because of the cross. N.T. Wright says, the answer to all of the, the wickedness and the evil of the world, their evil and our evil, Yours and mine is the cross. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to what you want to do in us and to your grace to us. And may we be people who through the cross live in that tension of grace and truth to what Christ has done for us in the cross. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. Tried by sinful men, scorned and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.